Good morning, Risen Hope. 20 months. Uh, when we were uh, March 1st, uh, I think it was, 2020, which is our last service here. And uh, I remember telling Jacob, I think we're going to need to grab everything because we're not going to be back here. I was wrong. And I'm grateful to God that I was wrong. Uh, let me pray real quick before we begin and ask God for the help he can only pro provide. Heavenly Father, we do run into your arms. As we come to your word, we run into your arms, expectant and hopeful, knowing that you are a merciful God, and knowing that if we see anything in your scriptures today, it's because of you. It's because of your work in our hearts through your spirit. It's because of the glory that is in the scriptures that you breathed out. And so I, I, I plead with you on my behalf and on behalf of everyone here that you would work powerfully in our minds and our hearts to bring the realities of what we're going to see in 2 Timothy into our souls and, and may they find rest. May they find the foundation that they need to sit on to be with us forever. I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, uh, take them and turn with me to 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, which is the last verse we looked at uh, about six weeks ago when we were moving towards the final chapter in Paul's second epistle to Timothy. Timothy, of course, is this young protege uh, of Paul's. He's referred to as the beloved child at the beginning of the letter, and he's leading the church at Ephesus where there's a variety of contention and false teaching. And uh, before we begin, let me just say, I, I, I kind of intimated to this earlier, being back with you here is very special to me. Being with you on a Sunday, um, it, it reminds me, and I was, as I was preparing the sermon, it reminds me of the line from Frodo. I don't know if you guys have read Lord of the Rings or seen Lord of the Rings uh, but the very last volume, um, which is The Return of the King, he, Frodo turns to Samwise in the closing chapters of the book, and he says, I am glad you are here with me here at the end of all things. And uh, this is, of course, not the end of all things. This isn't even the, even the end of, of the, the, the biggest things in our lives, but it is the end of our little church family that we've cherished for the last four and a half years. And I just want you to know that I am very glad to be with you here. Very glad. Uh, this chapter that we've been calling Risen Hope in our lives um, is precious to me. And I am grateful to God for it. Uh, and I'm grateful to be with you here on a Sunday as we come to this book. I want you to know, if there's one thing clear from me over the last four and a half years, it's that I love you. I am deeply grateful for what God has done in and through you over the years to encourage me, and you've been a blessing to me, and uh, there's nowhere else I'd rather be on a Sunday morning than with you guys. All right, the scriptures. For those who can't recall or may have uh, forgotten what 2 Timothy is all about, verse 12, the last verse from last time we looked at this text, does a great job of summarizing this, um, this epistle's main, primary, powerful theme. Um, and it's in verse 12. Let's look at it. So Paul, after reminding Timothy about how he himself has endured suffering for the sake of the gospel, says this, 
He says, indeed, verse 12, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. This is the the essence of 2 Timothy distilled into one verse. Paul is saying here that the desire and zeal to live a life that is godly, a life that embraces Christ as the endless treasure that he is, that desire, he says, will lead to persecution. In the Greek, this word is dioko. It means to put to flight, to chase, to hound, like dogs hounding somebody as they're running, to persecute, whether through the evil intentions of men or whether through the enemy directly, this is what Paul has in mind. And so if you desire to put your confidence in Christ Jesus and you desire to to make that confidence known to the world that he is your treasure, if that's what happens here in your life, you should anticipate and expect suffering and persecution and struggle and hardship. This isn't a new idea. Like I said, it's the theme of the book, the, the, probably the best verse in this entire epistle to personify this theme is where Paul, at the very beginning, chapter 1, verse 8 says, do not be sh- ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. But he tells Timothy, share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He's saying, Timothy, listen, don't be ashamed of Jesus. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be afraid of ridicule or slander or persecutions that you might, and in fact, Paul's saying, you're going to. You're going to endure and experience these for the sake of the gospel. What you need to do, Timothy, is you need to share in this suffering with me and with the other saints around the world and share in that suffering by the power and the strength that God provides. This is the theme of the book. Here are two, two other passages here that crystallize this. And I just want to go through these so that we get a feeling of the heartbeat and the melody line of this text. Chapter 1, verse 11 and 12, Paul says of himself, I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do, Timothy. But listen to me, I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Paul knew suffering intimately. And so he doesn't speak this command to Timothy out of a a, a state of ignorance and bliss. He's in prison and he's about to die. Chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, he centers Timothy on what he needs to always remember, always have in his mind. He says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering bound with chains as a criminal. But listen, Timothy, I may be bound, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything, including these chains, including this cell, including my impending execution, everything for the sake of the elect that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This is the main theme of 2 Timothy, that the gospel This message of salvation is worth enduring suffering for. It's that glorious. It's that beautiful. It's that powerful. The center of the scriptures, this message of the gospel is worth 
hardship and sorrow. And so while Paul and Timothy both have ministries that put them on the front line of this experience in ways that we don't know because they're preachers and teachers. Well, I know, but, but most rank-and-file Christians don't know. They're, they're, this doesn't exclude all of us from embracing this call. This isn't just for pastors. This isn't just for elders and shepherds and leaders. This is for everyone, which is why Paul says in chapter 3, verse 12, all who desire to live a godly life, all who have been gripped by the glory of Jesus Christ in the gospel should anticipate and prepare to be on the receiving end of suffering. This doesn't mean we actively seek suffering. I want to say this very clearly. We are not masochists. We don't pursue this at the hands of the culture around us. But rather, what this does is it crystallizes the pursuit of the Christian life. That we, with all of our might, pursue the godly life that is held out in this book. And in that pursuit, by God's grace, our conformity into the image of Christ, our godliness will most often come as we experience and weather hardships in our lives. As we go through difficult situations. Some of you know this intimately. And some of this you will learn later. Some of you will learn this later. Um, the, the essence of this is that we are sanctified by the very godliness or by the very suffering our pursuit of godliness is inciting. Think about that dynamic. We become more godly as we endure the sorrows of life, especially afflictions that come to us for us proclaiming the gospel or living a godly life or embracing Jesus above everything else in this world. And I don't have time to expand on this comprehensively. Really, the entire series has been about this um, in the last message specifically, so feel free to go back to that one if you wanted a refresher. But I'm going to give you two passages from the scriptures that say this unashamedly. Listen to this. Romans 5.3, Paul says, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So think about what Paul's saying in that one passage. That suffering is the means, it's the instrument that God has chosen to make Christians more like Christ. It's not the only means. But if you've experienced suffering as a Christian, you know that this is what it does. Hebrews 12, 10 is even more clear. The author says, God disciplines us, his children, Christians, for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, when we're in the middle of it, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. We don't want it. But the author says, later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. We are sanctified as we travel through the valley of suffering. Even Jesus, Hebrews 3.8, who was morally perfect in every way, did not allow his moral perfection to stay in a theoretical state, but instead, according to Hebrews 3.8, Though he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Even Jesus, 
So Paul is saying to Timothy, don't run from suffering. Share in it, Timothy. Peter would tell us in his first epistle, don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes to your doorstep. That's part of what it means to be a Christian. James would say it even more radically, hey, count it all joy when you go through trials and hardships of various kinds. Count it joy. What this tells us at at a very simple level is that God is more concerned about our eternal joy than he is about our immediate physical comfort. That might be hard for some of us to hear. I mean, many days it's hard for me to hear because I have my eternal joy and my immediate physical comfort so intertwined in my thinking, they are two separate things. Two separate things. This is Paul saying this in the middle of prison, hanging on to Jesus for dear life. And so this is why we have the Bible. This is why we have a book like 2 Timothy in our hands. 2 Timothy and the scriptures as a whole exist to put steel in the spines of Christians in a world that is actively hostile to this book and to the one who wrote it. The author of Hebrews would say, Christians have need for endurance. That's a simple way of putting it. Christians have need for endurance. So as we approach these closing uh, verses in this closing chapter, really in this uh, book of 2 Timothy, it's of no surprise that Paul in this letter begins to lean on the urgency for Timothy of this need, this need for endurance, for him to be ready to endure. Paul is going to die. He's not going to be there anymore. So he wants to tell Timothy what he needs to know. And what he does next after verse 12 or 13 is he begins to explain how we are sanctified. It's not just suffering on its own. There is an instrument. There is an essential ingredient that will make us more like Jesus even as we are weeping in pain, even as we are going through something that feels impossible to get out of. Paul says it in verse 14. He says, but as for you who are living in a, in, a, in a generation that is defined by deceiving others and being deceived, as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned, he says, and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from a childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture, he says, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is Paul's antidote for the Christian who is living in a culture ravenously tugging at them to drink from the same cup that they're drinking, deceiving and being deceived. It's the verse immediately before this passage. And Paul's focus here is unsurprisingly the scriptures, the word of God. That's the ingredient. That's the essential instrument of sanctification. The sacred writings that hold out the truth of the gospel. The Old Testament is the promises of God pointing to the fulfillment of them in the New Testament. That's the Bible, the scriptures, the gospel at its center. 
And we've seen this idea in 2 Timothy before. The very message we are called to proclaim in this world is the means by which we are strengthened and encouraged to endure the suffering that comes along for proclaiming it. It's a unique concept. The same book we proclaim is the book that keeps us in the middle of the storms of life, even when it's the storms, most of them are coming from us holding on to it so tightly. So Paul tells Timothy here, listen, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. Don't stop seeking the glory of Christ in his book. Continue in it. You've learned it. You firmly believed it. Now you, you need to, Timothy, remain rooted in that word. Don't abandon it. Don't, don't try to go beyond it to some other place. Stay here. He's going to tell us why to, we, we should stay there. But before we look at that, he does something really interesting here, something that surprises us if we read a lot of Paul. This is not normal for him to do. He tells Timothy not only a straight-up commandment to, 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 to continue in it, but he says, he gives him some evidence and reason why he should do this. He says, remember from whom you've learned it and how from a childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, the Bible, writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So Paul doesn't just anchor Timothy's continuing in the scriptures, his, his continued study and reading and pressing into God's word. He doesn't anchor that in a single command. He could do that. He does it throughout all of his writings. Paul takes a second and says, listen, I want you to call to memory those who faithfully taught you, Timothy. Even as a child, you became acquainted with the scriptures. I love that word acquainted. It's like a friend. You got to know the Bible like your best friend. He learned the Bible as a child, which this recalls for us what was said earlier. If you remember in chapter one, Paul in verse five says to Timothy, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. Paul is reminding Timothy of his family, the people who taught him the word of God. And he's reminding him of the faithfulness that Timothy has witnessed as a product of the very scriptures they taught him. Remember them, recall to, to your mind them teaching you these things and then living them out in front of you. Paul's reminding Timothy of these women, your mother, and your grandmother taught you the word of God, even when you were a little boy, Timothy, even when you were a child. Timothy's faith wasn't just simply the result of like a, a novel idea that had swept through his hometown of Lystra. And he's like, this is really cool, Christianity. It's something new. It's a new fad. I'm going to cleave onto it. That's not what happened here. His faith in Jesus Christ was the result of teaching over the course of years in his life, grounded in God's word by those who loved him and those whose lives bore the testimony that they really believed what they taught. So Timothy should consider that. 
But as important as that evidence is, this note that Paul's doing at a very personal level for Timothy, as important as that is, is, what is vital to recognize is that Paul doesn't say that these women are the reason that Timothy is wise for salvation. He doesn't say that. Even if they were instrumental, even if they were critical, even if it is crucial for, for parents to teach their kids these things, he says what makes you wise for salvation is the scriptures. What makes you wise for salvation is this. The Bible, ultimately, the sacred writings are able to make you wise for salvation. So this is important. The active agent here isn't those through whom we learn the Bible. Whether that be Lois, whether that be Eunice, or whether that be me, or anyone else who's, who's taught at Risen Hope. That is not the active agent. We are not the active agent. We are only servants through whom the word of God came. The active agent here is the word. The word is able to make us wise unto salvation. The word is able to transform our hearts from hardness to tender reception. It's able to deliver us from the darkness of unbelief to faith in Christ Jesus. And it's, it's so critical to understand this, especially at this juncture for all of us, because we need to know that our ability to understand the scriptures isn't from any man, any man. Our ability, even if they're helpful, our ability to understand the scriptures is from God. God gives the growth, 1 Corinthians. Irregardless of the teacher, and he does this through his sacred writings, through the scriptures. So this book, it looks normal, paper, in a binder. It is not a passive instrument. This book gets a hold of you, you will see it is a powerful weapon. A weapon that through God's spirit decimates unbelief wherever it may try to take root. Hebrews 4 probably says this the best. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. In other words, God's word cuts sharper and deeper than any blade ever conceived of by the mind of man or created by their hands. God's word cuts to the deepest part of a human being and then begins to fix what's broken at the center. And this is why Peter in his own epistle tells us God's word, that the, the source of our new birth, we have been born again by the living and, and abiding word of God, a word that will last forever. Peter's main point in that section of his epistle is that God's word is alive. It is an imperishable seed that penetrates your heart, takes root, and does what God desires for it to do. That's, the word, that's what we're talking about when we talk about this book and the words that are in it. And therefore, it does not matter if you've had Lois or Eunice in your life. It doesn't matter. It only matters that you've heard the word and that you firmly believed it. Hear it, believe it. Now, obviously, parents, 
especially of young kids. Obviously, we are responsible for the souls of our, our kiddos, our children. We are responsible for teaching them, especially at a young age, the truths in this book. And we cannot afford to relinquish that responsibility. Our children's eternities are caught up in whether or not they believe what this book says about reality. But we should never forget that it's not the teacher who has the power here. It is not us. It is the scriptures alone. It's God's word. And so when we all go out in 2022 to look for new churches, new church families to meet with, let me commend it to you. It is vital that you find one that is centered on this book and on its truth. That's what we must continue in. That's what we must press on into. It is the foundation from which we can never leave as Christians. And Paul, in the verses that follow here in 2 Timothy, captures why this is so essential. Verse 16 and 17. He says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. So there are two basic ideas here. They're very simple, but they're probably some of the most profound and deepest truths about the scriptures in all the Bible. I'm going to give both of them in order, and then we'll dive into each of them in turn. The first one is that scripture is breathed out by God. The second one is that scripture is the means by which people are made progressively more like Jesus, more righteous, more godly. Those are the two ideas. So let's look at the first one. All scripture, he says, is breathed out, uttered, authored by God, which is a word we've seen before. This word in Greek is theonostos. It means God breathed. Scripture comes from God. Every word of it, every page of it is from him. 1 Peter 1, 10 through 11 says, concerning this salvation, the uh, salvation that comes from the gospel, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, he's talking about the Old Testament writers of scripture, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time, listen to this, the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Peter is saying here that the scriptures, the Old Testament prophets, when they were writing down the words that they wrote down that we have in this book, it was the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ Jesus was inspiring those writings. He was making it happen, not in a way that did violence to, to the voices and to the individual writing styles of those authors, but the Spirit was guiding them along the way. It is God-breathed. And the word breath in Greek, and actually the word breath in Hebrew, is the same word for spirit. In Greek, it's pneuma. In uh, Hebrew, it's ruah. But it's breath and spirit go hand in hand. They're, they're the same idea, same concept, which is why Paul can use this language. God's spirit is the one who, who guided the writing of the scriptures. It comes from God. Peter, in his second epistle, actually makes this very clear. Chapter 1, verse 19. Listen to this. This is an awesome text. Um, and this is actually a series in and of itself. Just writing it down, I was like, man, I wish I had more time for this. Peter says we, that is 
the apostles first, and then the Christians that came from the apostles' teaching. We have the prophetic word. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Then he says this, this is amazing. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's amazing that he can say that with such clarity. This is where the Bible comes from. The Bible comes from God. Men spoke from God in their own words, in their own languages, engaging the the, the issues that were in their generation, but they were carried along by the Holy Spirit every single syllable of their writing. All scripture is ultimately breathed out by God. It isn't the product of man's will or his own interpretation. That's the first point in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Scripture is not from man. When you read this book, you are reading the very words of God and thinking the very thoughts of God after him. What Peter says in that passage we just read actually leads us to the second point in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. He says here that the prophetic word was more fully confirmed because the promises of the Old Testament were fulfilled in his death and resurrection. And then he says, therefore, we need to pay attention to it. We need to view Scripture as though it was this shining lamp in the middle of the darkness of this present world. Like Psalm 119 says, you guys know, hopefully some of you guys know this, Psalm 119, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto our, amen. That's what Peter's saying here. In fact, he probably was thinking of Psalm 119 when he wrote this. And that statement is really just another way of saying all scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete equipped for every single good work. Scripture is the key instrument that God applies to us for our sanctification, especially as we've seen when we pass through the valley of suffering. Suffering alone does not make us holy, and the entire world proves this case. Suffering alone does not make us holy. In fact, for many, suffering makes us more angry and bitter toward God. Why are you doing this to me? Evidence against God in many people's minds. And the reason why is is because they've banished God's word and his reality from their lives. They've banished who he is and his promises from their very existence. Suffering will never have the effect that Romans 5 earlier told us, producing endurance and character and hope, it will never have that effect if it is experienced without reference to God's word. It won't. It won't have the effect it needs to have if it's experienced without reference to his reality, who God truly is, and his promises, I will never leave you. And those are only encountered 
in what he has said by his spirit. We have no other way of having those promises apart from him giving them to us in the scriptures. God's word, Paul is saying, is where we are taught. God's word is where we are reproved, we are reprimanded, we are convicted of our sin when we've done something to dishonor God. God's word is where we are corrected when we are careening off course, making foolish decisions. God's word is what trains us in righteousness, what makes us, will make us ultimately complete on the final day, especially as we pass through hardships. That's what God's word does. It equips us for every good work, not just by telling us the good works, by making our hearts ready and active to do them. And all of this happens in God's word. It, it started happening. I mean, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, it started happening the very first moment you encountered the gospel. The very first moment you encountered the central message of the scriptures, this reality started to happen to you. When you started to believe, you're like, this isn't, there's no way a man wrote this. There's no way. It had to have been God. And the moment you believed that. When that happened, the truth that Paul is speaking about here in the scriptures began to take root in you and change you, even if you didn't recognize its change. The sacred writings began to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ in that moment. But I want to I be clear about this. The Bible doesn't work like an instruction manual does. That's not the way it works, even though there are instructions in it. Um, Scripture doesn't work just by giving us new information or data that we can assess and kind of make observations about. That's not the way it, it, it works. And that's not what Paul means when he says it makes us wise for salvation. This isn't just new data that we process and we're like, ah, that sounds great. The encounter with this book and the truths in this book is the deliverance from blindness. It is the removal of a veil from our eyes and the divine gift of faith in Christ Jesus. This needs to be very clear. Otherwise, we will miss the power that is present in this book and we'll think it's just like every other book in the world. It is not. It's not. When you and I came to this book prior to faith in Christ Jesus, we did not come neutral. We did not come objective we came with the, the, the sin of native to all human beings that caused us to oppose it. We don't want God. We don't want God's word. We don't, definitely don't want his instructions. We want to live how we want to live. We were hostile to the message of this book. And so when Paul says, when he says it makes us wise for salvation, it's not like learning how to do your taxes, it's not like learning how to change a tire on a car. It is when you encounter the truths in this book like open heart surgery of the soul. In fact, that's the way the Old Testament describes it. I'm going to take your hard heart out. I'm going to put a soft one in. That's what happens here. This is why Paul began with, continue in what you've learned. He tells Timothy, continue in what you have learned and what you have firmly believed. Something happened to you, Timothy, that caused you 
to be gripped by this book. You went from, there's a paradigm shift here. Even for Timothy, who was taught at a young age, something happened inside of him. And he went from despising what is said in this book to being utterly and totally gripped by it. 2 Corinthians 4 probably has the best way of articulating this. Um, 2 Corinthians 4, I've read this many times to you. This is probably going to be the last time that I will read it to you. Um, So I'm going to read through the beginning of this chapter, and I just want you to sit and listen to Paul's arguments and his thinking here. I'm only going to make two brief observations from it, but I want you to to feel the weight of this this, the beginning of this text. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 1. Paul says, Therefore, having this ministry, he's talking about his own ministry, teaching, preaching, speaking about God from the scriptures, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we, pastors, preachers, people like Paul, do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel, our message is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, Paul says, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim, Paul says, is not ourselves. We're not about us, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. And here's the reason why he does this. Here's the reason why there is a Christian in the world. For God, who long ago said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's a lot, but but let it land on you. He's describing how someone becomes a Christian. And these are radical ways to describe it, radical words to use. First, Paul begins here how he gets into this, this subject matter is he says, I refuse to tamper with or twist God's word. I refuse to be cunning or clever. I'm not cunning or clever. I preach with an open statement of the truth. I bring to you what this book says openly and plainly. And the reason why is that blindness to God's word, ignorance to the things and the truth in this book, is the work of Satan in the minds of unbelievers. It is a veil of darkness. It's not neutrality, it's not objectivity. It is deception. And that blindness, Paul says, can only be eradicated by one thing, God's word. Not by clever arguments, not by strategic rhetoric. None of that will have any lasting effect. It is the word that does this. And the way he defines the word in this passage here is he calls it the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Or in verse six, the light of the knowledge of of the the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Same reality through a different angle on the prism. This is the gospel. This is the word of God. And here, 
when he talks about what happens when that collides with a human's heart through their ears, they think about what's being said, he revisits the first moment in creation. Of all the places he could go to paint a picture of what happened to us when we first believed, he goes here, where God, standing before the darkness of unreality, looked into that darkness and said, let there be light. And there was light. He brought into existence something that did not exist. And he did it by speaking words to it. That's what Paul goes to. This is what happened when each of us believed. You may not think this way about your own, your own faith, especially if you're a kid and you've grown up in a, a family that's believing. You're like, this feels really miraculous, and I just kind of believed what I was taught, and I agree with it still. That faith right now in you is a result of God saying into your soul, let there be light. And there was light. And he saw the light, and it was very, very good. This is not our doing. Our faith in Christ Jesus is not a work of man. It is a divine and gracious act from the hands of God. That's what Paul's saying here, where God shines into our hearts, and in that moment, he makes us wise for salvation. What happened to you when you first believed was a miracle. As big a miracle as anything Jesus did when he walked the earth. It was a miracle. But what we need to be aware of is it's not a one and done miracle. Like God just turned on the light switch and said, peace out, later. Now you're on your own. This is a miracle that is done every single day you wake up and are still a Christian. It is a, a reality that happens to you that is an ongoing gift from God every time you believe. When you wake up in the morning and when you go to bed at night, it is an act of God to sustain. Your preservation as a Christian, your believing in the scriptures and in the gospel isn't the result of your logic or your, your innate wisdom, what you bring to the table, it is the result of God's gracious and continued work in your heart to shine this light into you. And it most often happens through this book. Whether we're reading it, whether we're hearing it preached, whether we're just reflecting on what it says, whether we're just thinking about the narrative that the Son of God died for me. That is enough to course beams of light into the center of our souls so that we can see him. When we read this book, when we come to Jesus in the scriptures, with the eyes of our hearts, we see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. We meet him in this book. That's what happens when you read it. We meet Jesus, the light penetrates the darkness and it is from bathing in that light that we not only see him, but we become more like him. We become what we behold, what we love. So what Paul says in the verse just prior to 2 Corinthians 4, he says, we all with unveiled face, people who believe in Jesus, 
beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the next. This comes from the Lord who is spirit, the very spirit who inspired this book. As we come to this book with faces that are unveiled by faith in Christ, we encounter the glory of God. And the Spirit uses that glory to transform our hearts so that we become more and more like Jesus. It's slowly, but it's deeply. You may not think it's going on. You may only be fixated by your failures and your sins. It is happening. One glory to the next. One glory to the next. Even our failures serve to bring this about for God's children. And Paul's saying to Timothy, listen, in the middle of suffering, in the middle of affliction, in these experiences that you're going to have in your life, continue in this book. Don't let go of this book. Continue in what you've learned and firmly believed. This is where we meet with God, Timothy. This is where we meet with Jesus in his words. So in the earliest days of Risen Hope, I don't know if you guys remember this, we had a banner that stood out here. How many people remember that, the banner? We had two banners at one point, but we started with one. And on that banner was Psalm 43, 4. And maybe you guys remember what it said, but if you don't, I'm going to tell you right now. It says, I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. Remember it now? That was out there because of text like this in 2 Timothy. That was out there because I, I really, we wanted, the leaders of the church wanted, uh, we desired for people when they came into this building to fellowship and to sing and to worship, to recognize this is what's going on. We are coming to the altar of God. We are coming to God who is our exceeding joy. When we sit under this book, that's what's happening. So, verse three of that same Psalm says, send out your light to God. The psalmist is pleading, send out your truth. Let them lead me to your holy hill. Let them bring me to your dwelling. It is a plea from God to bring us to what he has said in his book so that we can encounter him as our exceeding joy. And the only reason that that can happen, the only reason that we can read this book and instead of just saying, these are words and periods they don't really matter to me. Might be a cool movie, but whatever. Instead of us responding to that, the reason we respond with faith is because at the center of this book is an altar. And on that altar, Jesus Christ was nailed. The cross. This is why Paul refers to the center of scriptures being the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. The main story of the Bible, the central narrative of the scriptures is the story of Jesus' redemptive work for us. What he did on the cross. The gospel is the entire point of this book. And it's where we encounter God in the glory that he has revealed. And we only encounter that because of the work of Christ to eradicate our darkness on the cross. You and I would still be in the dark if what was promised in the Old Testament never happened in the New. But it has happened. And we are not lost in our own self-destructive autonomy, 
the work of Christ to come into the world and to take on our sin and to die in our place gives us access to the glory that is in this book. That is an awesome thought. It not only gives us access, but it is also what opens the hearts, or the eyes of our hearts to see that God is not just an obligation. God is not just some kind of religious activity, but he is actually our joy. God is our exceeding joy. He is what Psalm 43 says. He is a treasure beyond imagination. And any failure on our part to feel that or to see that reality is most often attributed, if we're honest with ourselves, from a lack of desire to meet him where he is. In the words of this book, to see him with the eyes of our hearts. But when we come to this book with humble, open hearts, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you need to know that when that happens, you are meeting with the God who wrote it. You're not just reading words. He comes to us in the words, in the sentences, in the stories, in the exhortations, in, in, in all the indicative statements about how we, who we are in Christ Jesus. He is there, present to meet with us. So one thing that I hope, risen hope, has increased in your life over the last four and a half years is a zeal to meet with God in the scriptures as, in, as our infinite, unfading joy to meet with him in the book that he wrote for you. That you and I, I mean, that we would have lives that desire to come to him every single day, long to be with him, not out of some begrudging obedience, not out of some kind of obligatory checklist, but that we would have an unquenchable thirst to meet with God our exceeding joy. This is my prayer. This, is my, this has been my prayer since day one, since before day one for this church. And this is my prayer now and into next year. I will continue to pray it for you. There is a God who is infinitely glorious, infinitely glorious, such that if you could only see him for a moment, you would never, ever want to leave his presence. If you could see him as he truly is, you would never want to be away from him. This is the God of the Bible. This is the God who wrote this book, and he wrote it for you to meet with him in its pages. In early 2017, before uh, Rachel and I even felt uh, a tug to, to plant a church in Kingsgate, um, I felt, after reading a George Whitfield biography in particular, but I felt a, a deepening constraint to shift my schedule radically and to start waking up in the morning at 5 a.m. If you know me, that's a hard thing to do. I am a night person. I am not a morning person, but I felt like I needed to wake up at 5 a.m. I needed to get in, in front of this book and I needed to meet with Jesus. And it was extremely challenging for me. Um, but I really felt like the Spirit was saying, you need to do this. This is essential for you. This is before there was any risen hope in our mind. I wanted to start my day with Jesus. It's not because I'm great. That's because 
he did that work in my heart. And it's hard. It, it was so difficult that I thought of ways to make it even easier. Like I'll put my alarm clock on the upside side of the room, which my wife really appreciates. So it takes me an extra period of time and I'm... But I recognized somewhere along the way that what I needed to do was tell myself that this is not just me saying mindless prayers to an empty sky. This is not just me reading books from a clever historical book that belongs to one of many religions. That this is me meeting with the Lord Jesus. And so on my phone, I have a note. It's a note that I read every time I turn off my alarm. And I read it so that I can feel this reality and stay up. The note simply says, good morning, Jeremy. I am downstairs when you're ready to talk. Sincerely, Jesus. Now, Jesus didn't write that. I wrote that. But he meant it. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Open the door. Let me come in and eat with you. Let me come in and talk to you. Let me come in and love you. And I just want to attest to you, it's true. He is downstairs every morning with me. Every morning. Never fails, even if I fail to get up. And he is ready to talk. And I want to promise you right now, you will find him more willing to meet with you in this book than you are ever able to muster the energy or the desire. Consider that as you plan opportunities to be with him. He wants to meet with you. He wants to tell you about you and about him and about the glory that awaits us, the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. And so let me just plead with you, give your life to this. Give your life to this. As Paul says to Timothy, continue in what you've learned and what you have firmly believed. Don't stop. Continue in it. And Christ will be with you in this word. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, it is an amazing thing that you can take weak, frail men like me and speak words through them to your people and them to have any effect at all. It is a miracle. And I am keenly aware of it in these moments when I've been afforded opportunities to talk with my friends about you. And I just ask, Father God, that you would pour out your spirit on all of us so that we could receive the implanted word with joy, that you would bury it deep into our hearts and that you would awaken in us a zeal to glorify you by pursuing you where you are in your scriptures. You've written us a book because you want us to think about what you're thinking about, to live the way you live, and to ultimately see the beauty of Jesus Christ in what he accomplished for us on the cross and to trust in that glorious act of redemption. I plead with you that you would do this, Father God, for the sake of your name and for your glory and for the joy of all of us. In the name of Jesus, amen.